So today we begin a new series in the book of Judges, which is a really like light-hearted book. Um, I think it's appropriate that today it's raining and dreary outside because uh, Judges is actually that kind of book. In fact, um, I was on a mission trip when I was in college uh, to the country of Wales. Do you guys know that Wales is a country? Do you know that? Okay, good. Our slogan for that mission trip was Save the Whales. That's what we did. And uh, I'm actually not joking. And, um, and we're on that trip, and I was going around my, my cabin of guys, and I was asking them, hey, what are your, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And we had the typical Philippians and then Proverbs and Psalms. And this one kid named John, who was kind of crazy and violent, and he said, Judges was his favorite book, and I went, I will pray for you. And so um, that was his, he's the only person I've ever met in my life that that was his favorite book of the Bible, was the book of Judges. So um, anyone have any life verses from the book of Judges? Life verses, coffee cup verses? Probably not, right? And so uh, today we're diving into this book, and um, we're not just teaching one Sunday. We're going to teach the entire book. So you guys excited about that? You want to hear about the book of Judges? I'm excited about the book of Judges. I really am, even though it's going to be depressing. So um, when I was in college, the the show on VH1 came on called Behind the Music. Anyone ever watch this show about bands that you like? All one of you. All right. It's an old show. That's why I said when I was in college is when it came on is when I remember it coming on. So there was a show called um, Behind the Music, and every show was like this pattern of of what you would see. And so here's the pattern that you would see for this show. It was basically um, uh, the, the, the band or the artist would go from rags to riches, and then from riches they went into drugs usually, if not before. And then it was drugs, drugs, and more, more drugs. The more money you had, the more drugs you can afford, right? So then it would go from, uh, now they're at rock bottom, and they would go to rehab, except for that one chick with the poofy hair who refused to go to rehab. And, um, and then there was always the comeback after that, right? And this was the pattern of the show. And in, in some ways, the book of Judges is similar because Israel has this very distinct pattern in how they operate throughout the book of Judges. So in this show, it was like the same story, just a different band every episode. And so in the book of Judges, it's like the same story, just a different judge each time, all right? And so it'll sound a little bit repetitive, but there's some things you can pull out from each one of these stories that I think are profound. And what you're going to realize as we study this book is that our lives often parallel the lives of the Israelites. And so today we're we're kicking off uh, this series, give you a little bit of background on this book. Um, If you recall, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for um, about 400 years. They're set free through the 10 plagues. You remember that, crossing the Red Sea? And Pharaoh's army is destroyed. And then they go to the, um, the wilderness, right? And they were um, like really thirsty and they were really hungry. And so God tells Moses to uh, speak to a rock and the rock will have water come out of the rock. Except Moses, for some reason, hits the rock twice with a staff. And just because of that one thing, God says, you can't go to the promised land. Right? It sounds harsh, doesn't it? And so uh, Moses disobeys, so he can't go to the promised land. So then Joshua is the one that has to lead them into the promised land. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies off until they get the promised land. They finally enter in at the leadership of Joshua. And 
Judges, so now Joshua is now dead, and Judges is a transition book from the book of Joshua to the book of, uh, we have Ruth after Judges, right? Yes, yes. Then we get into the first, second Samuel, and first second Kings, first second Chronicles, and so um, it's a transition book from Joshua to the kings, and the first king of Israel was who? Remember? First king of Israel, Saul. And so um, this book is the leaders of, of Israel. Now, they're not kings, and they're not um, the kind of leaders that Joshua and Moses were. And so we're going to look at the, these, uh, these 15 judges in the book of Judges as we go through the series. The purpose of this book is pretty clear, and it's this. Go to the next slide. The purpose of this book is it's written to show the consequences of unbelief and disobedience. As if you and I need any further reminders of what happens when we disobey God, this book serves a, a, a great um, serves that great purpose. So, so here's what happened. So God told the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites. So Israel's about to enter the promised land, and they already have entered in, but God told them, he said, he said very specifically, he said, I want you to drive out the Canaanites, but they disobeyed. They did not drive out the Canaanites. And so now the Canaanites are living among them. Now suddenly the culture and the world of the Canaanites looks very appealing to the Israelites. This is why God said drive them out, because if you don't, you're going to fall prey to their pagan gods. You're going to commit idolatry. You're going to fall prey to their sins if you do not drive them out. And so if you recall, Israel had come from slavery. So they had come from very humble beginnings. And the culture of the Canaanites was very prestigious, money, art, architecture. It'd be like going from small town Texas to like New York City, where everything just seems more legit because it's a big city, right? And so it just seems that way. And they're starting to be lured into the Canaanite culture as a result of their own sin. And so Canaan's culture began to influence them. Now, you must know that the Canaanite culture and their religion was, uh, was very sexual. They had priestesses that were um, dedicated to their temple, and they worshipped the, the false god Baal, the, the, uh, the Baal gods, and they had, they had temple prostitutes. Just think about that for a minute. Temp- so, like, their worship services involved sex with prostitutes, okay? Not trying to be crass. It's just the way it was in that culture. That's how open they were in their sexuality. And so you can imagine that the Israelites are thinking, hey, they have a pretty exciting worship service at their temple. That sounds a little more appealing than what we do at our temple with killing animals and stuff. So um, you can see how they could easily veer off the path here and, and want to get into some, some Baal worship. That would not be a hard sell for them. Imagine trying to recruit people for that youth group. That would not be too difficult, right? So um, one of the key passages... In the book of Judges, is Judges chapter 21, verse uh, 25, where it says, <clears throat> it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, does that sound like ancient Israel? Or does that sound like modern day America, possibly? Um. How many of you guys saw the, uh, the Grammys last Sunday? You saw the Grammys? 
Only the girls. Guys will admit they watch the Grammys, do they? No. Guys aren't like, hey, guys, come over. We'll have some popcorn and watch the Grammys together, right? That doesn't happen with the guys. Yeah. Sure, okay. So um, I actually did not watch them because I have small children, and I forgot they were on because my kids don't let me watch things on TV anymore. And uh, so I heard about it later, and, um, and I heard about the, the, the big wedding that they had on the Grammys during that one song. And um, if you don't know, so what happened was they sang a song about, you know, same love and all that kind of stuff, and it's, it's, it had one big uh, gay wedding, right? So they had a big gay wedding at the Grammys right there. So, um, and uh, if you go to my next slide, you'll just see a quick photo of this. I didn't get anything too graphic, but um, here's the wedding last week on the Grammys. And um, they took their vows uh, during the song. And so I want you to know something, that there are two ways that Christians often react to this kind of thing that happens in our culture. Here's the first way. Go to my next slide. The first way we react is surprise and disgust, right? The older generation typically typifies this kind of reaction. They'll, they'll say things like, can you just believe how debased our culture is, right? They'll use words like that. And so... What I would say to that person is this. You and I as Christians should not be surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers. We, we should not be surprised. I'm not, I'm not saying that in an arrogant way. You know, oh, what else do you expect? I'm not saying it like that. I'm saying it with as much grace as I can have in my heart. It is, look, if you and I didn't have Christ in our life, where would we be? Where would you and I be if we didn't have Christ in our life? And so if someone's not a believer, you and I cannot expect them to act like a believer. So the reaction should not be surprise and disgust when you see these kinds of things in our culture. The second reaction that people have, that younger Christians typically have, is acceptance and embrace. That's the person who says they want to react against their parents' generation. They want to say, my parents are mean and judgmental, and they frown upon this kind of thing. Therefore, I am going to be loving and gracious, and I'm going to accept everything. I'm going to embrace everything. And this is what the Israelites did in Canaan. This is just what they did. So as Christians, neither one of these things is right. We shouldn't embrace it, but we also should not be surprised by it and disgusted by people when they sin. And so I would say, to, say it this way, that our biggest concern as Christians, <clears throat> our biggest concern as Christians should not be them and the people in the culture that are sinning and acting like unbelievers. That should not be our biggest concern as Christians. Our biggest concern as Christians should be when other Christians fully embrace and celebrate sin. And this is what we're talking about this morning. We're going to talk about what it looks like to be a half-hearted disciple, someone who lives in the culture and someone who becomes like the culture because you're too afraid to stand up for your faith. We're going to discuss that this morning. Look at me at Judges chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 3. And here's what it says. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. That's an entire tribe. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, 
that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. I'm going to give you a quick quiz. All right, what did God say to do? To send Judah. Then what did Judah do? He went and asked Simeon, his brother, his brother tribe. Then what did Simeon do, right? He went with him and said, I'll, I'll watch your back if you watch my back. Now, it looks harmless, right? I mean, a brother helping a brother out, right? That's nothing wrong with that. Except one thing, and that's God said, I have asked Judah to go. And that's it. And then what does Judah do? He disobeys God. Now, this might not seem like a big deal. But God wants total obedience, not half-hearted discipleship. Why do you think, think about this, why do you think Judah would ask his brother Simeon to join him? Why would he do that? Any ideas? He's afraid. He doesn't trust God. God said, I want you to go. And he says, no, I'll ask my brother if he'll come with me because he's afraid. He lacks faith. And I will tell you this morning that any act that we perform of disobedience is always because of unbelief and faith. It's never about anything else except unbelief and a lack of faith. And so the first characteristic of a half-hearted disciple is this, disobedience in the small things. Disobedience in the small things. Small disobedience can have really big consequences. You go to my next slide. I've got um, a picture here. This is, I want to tell you a story about this guy. He was 19 years old when he died. And this young man, his name's Galen Headings. He was a, a really strong academic student. He was, played football for the football team at his school. He was in his freshman year of college, and he played football for that team as well. A strong Christian, a godly man. Never partied, never drank, did all the right things academically, socially, except for one night, his dad told him, be home by 12. And remember, that's when the, the, the drunk drivers come out after midnight, so be home by 12. And this one night, he disobeyed, went against what his dad said. He's out at 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning because someone talked him into staying out later than he should have. And that night... He was in a, on a, on a two-lane road, and he was stuck in traffic, couldn't get off the road. There's cars coming this way, and there's a drunk driver coming at him at 70 miles per hour, hits him head on. The steering wheel hits him in the face, and he's fine for a few hours. He thinks he's okay, but he died of internal bleeding hours later. And this man is my uncle. He was 19 when he passed away. I never met him before. My mom's brother. And she was 16 when he died. It shook her whole family. And just one little thing, small disobedience can have really big consequences. And I'm not saying to you that God punished him for this thing. I don't know. I can't answer that question. But I do know that God is a God who wants total obedience. He's a God who doesn't want people who break the rules, bend the rules. He wants people who obey him fully and obey those people listen and obey those people that he has put in authority over your life 
So when your, your dad says, I don't want you texting that guy, and you say, well, that's okay, I'll just use Snapchat. There's no record of, of it there. When you say that, you are bending the rules. That's not total obedience. When you're someone who bends the rules on tests, cheating, lying, you will find a way to make your way work. This is half-hearted discipleship. When you disobey the authorities that God has put in your life, you are disobeying God. You are disobeying Him. And that is just what the Israelites did. Where are you making compromises? Where are you embracing sin? Where are you okay with these kinds of things? Look at verse 4. It says, Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites, like Perizzites, not parasites, like a bug, into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, this is the enemy now, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Because that's just what you do. Verse 7, And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. Look at that. The man knows his own sin, right? Not even a believer. He actually knows, yeah, God's just paying me back for what I've done to everybody else. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. So why do you cut off someone's thumbs and their toes, right? If, if you're a warrior, what do you absolutely have to have to hold a sword? A thumb. You tried fighting with like, like this? That's not going to work too well, is it, right? You will get beat very badly. Ever tried to balance on your foot when you have a hurt toe? Can't do it, right? I had a friend uh, in, in high school who had four toes on one foot. He's born that way. And um, we would say, he, he actually was okay with us talking about it, and he was open about it. But he'd say, hey, look, I can balance on this foot. I can't balance. And he would start to fall over on the, he could, one toe. You miss one toe, and you're, you're a goner, right? You're a goner. You can't fight very well without a big toe and, a, and that, without your thumbs. You need those in case you didn't know that. And so this was their way of <clears throat> making someone incapacitated when it came to battle. And so look with me down now at um, verse 18. Skip down to verse 18. <clears throat> it says, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, on the surface, this passage looks really positive, right? It looks like, hey, they succeeded. In spite of the disobedience, God still gave them the victory. But I want you to notice something. <clears throat> Even though it looks victorious on the outside, look at that one verse where it says, but he could not drive them out of the plain because they had chariots of iron. This verse, if you gloss over it, you're going to miss this. So God said, drive out the Canaanites. Here it says, they can't because they had chariots of iron. Now I want to ask you a question. What did the Egyptians have? 
Do they have chariots of iron? They did, didn't they? And so did God have a problem with the, with the Egyptians at all in defeating them? No, no, he didn't. And so here's the second way we know someone is a half-hearted disciple, and it's this. They're too scared to take risks. Too scared to take risks. Go to my next slide. Too scared to take risks. So God calls you and I to be strong and courageous even when things are stacked against us. True discipleship is risk-taking. To be a true disciple of Christ means that we have to take risks. We have to be a person that puts our faith and our trust in him when we are afraid, when we are fearful of what might happen. You know, I don't know when Christianity became seen as something safe. Do you? I mean, if you walk the halls of your school and survey people and say, you know, what's the, what's the most dangerous, rebellious life you can possibly imagine? I doubt anyone's going to say Christianity. I doubt anyone's going to say, yeah, follow Jesus. Right? No one's going to say that. That's not the image we have in our minds of what it means to be risk-taking and taking chances, that's not how we envision our faith. We envision the faith as something that's safe and protected and nurturing, and, and that's how we view it. But when you read Scripture, especially the New Testament, all you see is people like the disciples giving their life for their faith, getting their head chopped off, getting crucified for Jesus, because discipleship is always going to be risk-taking. It's never going to be safe. Anyone who says to you that it's safe is feeding you a lie. There's nothing, there should be nothing safe about following Jesus. So we're too scared to take risks. But I want to clarify something. When I say that, I know the first reaction you might have is, well, that means I've got to be brave. I've got to work up all this bravery and, you know, charge the mountain, so to speak. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, talking, I'm not talking about a faithless bravery. I'm talking about a bravery that's based on faith and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. A man named Tim Keller says this, It is not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessings. It is our lack of faith in his strength. We lack faith in his strength. It's not about us just mustering up the strength to be brave and I'm going to take it to the world, right? That's not what it's about. It's about putting our faith and trust in the strength that he provides. Paul even says, in my weakness, I am made strong. Because he's putting his faith and trust in Christ, who is strong. You know, I think this really convicted me because this is really where I struggle. When I was a teenager, when I was in college, if someone said, let's go on a mission trip, and we're going to South Africa, and we're going to go into Soweto, which is the slums of Johannesburg, I'd say, sign me up. Let's go. And we went there. And people were concerned about us getting killed there. And we were like, hey, we don't care. Let's go. And then once you have a wife and kids, something happens to you. And most dads here can attest what I'm talking about. You feel this responsibility. You feel this caution. You feel this, I don't know if I want to go there because that place is dangerous. I want my kids to have a dad, wife to have a husband. We've got friends over in Lebanon who are missionaries. My wife's talked about going over there and, and ministering with them. And I'm, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, uh, Lebanon's kind of dangerous. 
And so something can happen when you get in, as you get older, you start to get, get cautious and you don't take many risks and you feel like, I don't want to stick my, my, my neck out there like that. And so I want to ask you the question, where are you in your life too scared to take risks? Where are you too scared to take risks? Look at Judges 1, uh, verse 28. Skip down. It says, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to force to labor, but did not drive them out completely. So once again, instead of driving out the Canaanites, what do they do? They enslave the Canaanites. So they did what was economically convenient. So the third way you know that we're a half-hearted disciple is when convenience trumps obedience. When you do the convenient thing before you do the obedient thing. I always talk to people all the time, if I have to ever confront someone in, in their sin that they're involved in, which I hate doing that, but it's a part of what I have to do as a pastor. And I always get the story or the excuse. Yeah, well, yeah, I did that, but not because it was sin, but I did it because of financial reasons, or I did it because of this, or I did it because of that. And I always say to them, I go, yeah, I understand that. And I say, sin's always more convenient. It is. Sin's always more convenient than obedience. Let's just call it what it is. But the question is, God wants total obedience, not half-hearted discipleship. And then you see a pattern here throughout these next few verses. Verse 29, verse 30, verse 31, it says, And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites, and Zebulun did not drive out the Canaanites, the inhabitants. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Are you seeing a pattern here? Look with me in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. Now here's the confrontation. You know things have gotten bad when God sends an angel to confront people, right? So look at verse 1. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So even in the middle of the Israelites having unbelief and total lack of trust in God, God reminds them that I will never break my covenant with you. What grace we see from God to the Israelites. Look in verse 2. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you've done? So after being, so now they're being confronted by this angel. God had commanded them to drive out the Canaanites and tear down their altars, their pagan idol-worshiping altars, but the Israelites did not obey. And I want you to think back to verse 19 of chapter 1 where it said, they could not drive them out because they had chariots. Think about that. It says they could not because they had chariots. But here it says, the angel says, you would not drive them out. And so the fourth way that you know we're a half-hearted disciple is when we say, I can't, when it's really we're saying, I won't. Right? We're, we're saying, I can't to God, but it's really an issue of, I won't. It's really an issue of, I will not obey you, not, I cannot obey you. And so where in your life 
Are you saying I can't, but really it's an I won't? There are so many areas of our life that this relates to. What are the areas in your life that God wants to change you, but you think change is impossible? But the real issue is that you just simply refuse to let God do what he wants to do in you. What are those areas of your life like that? Maybe it's a, it's a <clears throat> ungodly relationship. You're a Christian, or at least you call yourself one, and you're dating someone who's not a believer. And that's, that's not right. That's not, that's not even biblical. God says, do not be unequally yoked. And you say, I'm just dating the person. We're not married. Well, you're, you are yoked to that person right now. The idea of yoked is, goes beyond marriage. <clears throat> you're emotionally yoked to that person right now. And right now you're saying, but I can't, I can't end this. And God's saying, no, you, you just won't end it. It's not an issue of I can't, it's an issue of I won't. This is true in areas of forgiveness. I can't forgive that person. No, it's an issue of you won't forgive that person. I can't tell the truth. I'm going to get in so much trouble. No, you won't tell the truth. Or how about this one? I can't stop looking at pornography. No, you won't stop looking at pornography. <clears throat> what are the issues in your life that you're saying, I can't, but God, and everyone knows, and even you know it, it's really an issue of I won't. That's really the main issue that's driving it. Look at verse 3 through 5. It says, so now I say, <clears throat> I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. <clears throat> so watch what happens. This angel, God, God decides to give them the very thing that they want. They want to live among pagan idolaters, God says, I will give you the very thing that you want. And so many times in our lives, God giving us the very thing that we're asking for is the worst thing that can happen to us. Because that thing becomes a thorn in our side. And no longer do we see it as a positive thing, but now it's a negative thing and it is killing us. And it's going to do the same thing to the Israelites. And look at their reaction to this confrontation. Now, suddenly they start crying and weeping and wailing and and, and they start sacrificing. Look what happens. They get spiritual. They start going to church. They start reading their Bible. They start praying a lot more. Whenever you and I are confronted with sin in our lives, so often we turn on what I call the spiritual button. You start getting spiritual real quick. You're like, okay, I got I to gotta get back in church. I got to start doing things and, and mission trips, and I got to do all this stuff, and I got to fix all this. And what happens is, the spiritual activity becomes a facade that keeps you from having to really deal with your heart. And it becomes a big show. It becomes a big, big facade that just is distracting everyone else and yourself from really dealing with the heart of the issue, which is your repentance before God. And so the fifth way 
that we know we're a half-hearted disciple is confession without repentance. Confession is just admitting the truth. Okay, I know that's wrong, God. I know it's wrong. But repentance is a turning away from those things and turning towards God and saying, God, I want to desire you more than these idols. That is repentance. That's what it looks like. And so it's not just turn on the spiritual button so I can fix this real quick. It is let's deal with the sin of the heart. Let's repent. Let's go beyond confession and actually have a process of repentance. And have a heart that wants to change and be changed by Jesus. And so I want you to put my, my last slide, all these things on the screen and look at those. And I know that every single one of them gets every single one of us right in the heart, right? I mean, that's, this just hits all of us, including me. I'm preaching to myself this morning. So if you struggle with these things, the question is, what's the answer? Just go home and fix it? That's not the answer. The answer is the cross. It's the cross. I want you to look at this next quote by Tim Keller. The cross is the place where we find the freedom to accept ourselves without being proud and to challenge ourselves without being crushed. Many of you will leave here today and think, how do I, how do I not get crushed by what he just said? How, how does this, this passage not just you know, convict me to the core to where I just want to go crawl in a hole and just you know, cry and cry and cry? How can I, how can I not respond that way? And the, the answer is the cross. Because the cross allows us to see Jesus on that cross and to know he died for me on that cross. He accepts me in spite of my sin. I can approach him confidently in spite of my sin because of his work for me on the cross. And so you don't have to be crushed by it today. You can be brought back to life because of that truth. Let's go have some discussion at your tables. Go ahead and discuss your last few questions.